This is the Enviro Show here on SAFM, arguably the greenest show on the station. And team tonight, we've got uh, Kim Winter, Derek Fordyce, and I'm Nancy Richards. And what we're bringing you tonight, first up, is rats. Rats as heroes and rats as victims. Detector rats sniffing out landmines and tuberculosis. And victim rats suffering what appear to be the cancerous effects of genetically modified grains. Sounds like a... Indeed. What can I say? Well, we'll be finding out a little bit more about that later on. We'll be finding out about the effects of lightning, and we'll be hearing from a researcher doing his doctorate on lightning and risk. We'll be finding out principally what causes it, and are we getting more of it than we used to in the past? Well, we'll find out, as I say, a whole lot more about that. After that, rather less dramatic, perhaps, compostable packaging, nonetheless a very good thing. And finally, in our green goodie slot, honest to goodness, organic chocolate. And if at any stage you'd like to join in, well, why don't you just do it? The number is 0892 102010 0892 102010. <gasps> OMG. Well, indeed, OMG, because who knew that rats could sniff out tuberculosis or even landmines? Well, that's what we're talking about first here on the Enviro Show today. Because first up, we have, uh, we spoke earlier to Tesfazi Tilwelde. And uh, he's also known as Tess. He's Eritrean by birth. But currently he's a manager on the Mozambique program for a Belgian company called Apopo, which translates roughly as Landmine Clearance Product Development. Well, Tess's program utilizes rats for two purposes, one for sniffing out tuberculosis and the other one is for landmine detection using MDR. MDR stands for mine detection rats. The rats are used trained from the early stage and then uh, they pass through a number of process and testing and finally they get accredited to be fully operational in a live minefield. So we use the rats to detect or to locate um, landmines and then we simply send a trained demand to investigate that mine or uh, destroy that mine in situ. You know, I have an, a picture of thousands and thousands of rats getting blown to smithereens. Do they detect the mine and and then detonate it, or do they detect it and let you know and their uh, lives are saved? Good. Um, that's uh, most of the people think that we use the rats to step in and detonate the mine, mm. so we could be a way of clearing mine. But that's completely uh, the opposite. Rats are very light in weight, and uh, landmines need much more kg than the, the rats. So that's also the advantage of rats. They cannot detonate landmines because they are too light. So they sniff the landmines, which means they sniff the explosive. They are trained to sniff explosive component of the landmine. So they, when they are sniffing, they scratch the ground, and then the handler marks where the rat is sniffing, and then uh, the miner comes and destroys the mine. So basically, the rats don't destroy landmines. They just uh, sniff them. Sure. I believe there's something like 66 countries uh, around the world where landmines still proliferate. Where do you operate mainly? Uh, our biggest program uh, at the moment is Mozambique. We have really uh, one of the biggest. And then the starting program of Apopo is Mozambique. And then uh, we are operating uh, in Angola. We replicated the technology in Angola. And we are in the process of opening program in uh, other countries like Myanmar, 
and uh, Cambodia as well. But at the moment, we didn't deploy RAS yet there. And we have also a program in Thailand that is uh, conducting a national land survey. So at later stage, when the survey is finished, the plan is to send landmine detection rats mm-hmm. uh, into the country. So these are our area of operation at the moment. Presumably one has a rough idea of where the landmines are located, but wherever there are landmines, people are not able to develop that land either for agricultural or building purposes. So do you have a, a rough idea or do you send out the rats to find out? I mean, landmines are mainly in a, yes, agricultural land or mm. grazing land or could be other uh, water uh, sources and all kind of resources that the locals would use. So the landmines, when we clear the land with using the technology in combination to the other technologies we have, uh, then they liberate this land to the local, back to the local communities for uh, use. Tell us a little bit about them. I believe that they're the African giant pouched rats. What makes uh, them special, this particular breed of rat? I think uh, maybe a little bit not really scientific from my point of view, but uh, these rats have got a stronger sen- sm- sense of smell, mm-hmm. and then uh, they are, I should say, brighter than any other types of rats. So they can easily be trained, and then uh, they can be easily conditioning in uh, in associating uh, explosives towards the reward. And they are very good in what they do because uh, we have a very good uh, result in terms of the training. Then when we get when we get happy with the training result, mm. we deploy them to mine action. So very very strong sense of order and smarter compared to any ordinary rat. Okay, so we're dealing with bright rats here, yeah. African giant pouch. How big are they? Looking at your website, it seems that they're yeah, really quite they're big. Much bigger, I guess. The size is very big. It's not like the, any other rats which we, we see. Uh, uh, I think uh, they are, I could say, smaller cat size. Mm. It's uh, similar to the size of sugar cane rats, but uh, maybe sometimes sugar cane rats could be bigger than them. So approximately uh, such kind of uh, size. Are you breeding them specifically for this purpose? Exactly. We breed them in our research and the breeding system, which is in the HQ. We, uh, from early stage, they are uh, very much uh, trained or kind of conditioned toward uh, detecting landmines. And then the tuberculosis rats do the same the other direction. So we do breed them and then start from the very beginning. How do you train them? We train them by um, associating uh, their food reward. Or we have a special uh, reward when they detect explosives. They get a reward like banana and special peanuts, uh, rats peanuts or food that we provide. So uh, they they always associate detecting explosive order is where they get their bananas or their peanuts. So it's uh, something similar to the dog uh, rewarding uh, approach. But for rats, is uh, instead of ball, is a banana and uh, peanuts. It seems like there's quite a lot of trust between sort of uh, rat and mankind here. Do you, know, do you get quite close to them? And how many, how many are we looking at here? Is it possible to get uh, close to them? Yeah. Uh, we have uh, currently we have 43 uh, accredited, trained, and operational rats. So these rats, uh, once we bring them from our research and the breeding system from Tanzania, they need to go through a accreditation process in the country. So the National Authority Act team comes and accredits the rats, and once they pass, they are ready for operation. So we have 43 rats in the country. Once you've invested all this time and energy, I mean, how long does it take a rat to get? Uh fully trained so that you know that it's trustworthy? 
approximately uh, in after nine months of uh, age, the rats start to go to kind of uh, official training because mm-hmm. at early stage, uh, you know, when they are kind of associate their uh, playing ground or their cage is more of a feeding system is associated with explosive and then they know that they have to find this explosive to get their food. But the official training starts uh, after nine years old, then it goes through uh, for about three, four months, then they are fully ready for training, for operation. And what's the longevity? I mean, once you've invested all this time and energy and bananas and peanuts into these rats, how long do they, do they, how many years service do they give you? Yeah, I think that's the one of another quality of the rats. As you see, that the expense is very, very low. Very, they're very cheap to uh, to get them to to work because what you need to do is just to give them this uh, uh, relatively cheaper food, and then in a short period of time they get ready for operation. So they can stay until six years. Normally they can stay nine years uh, age working, but uh, for a safety reason we kind of uh, take them only for six years uh, operation. After that, uh, we kind of retire them. Where, where, where do they go once they're retired? <laughs> we have retirement scheme. So a lot of our rats are adopted by so many people who, who support them as a hero rat. And, and then once they get retired, they are, um, they are taking care in their compound. And then eventually, uh, when their time, if they comes, they might die. But we mm. always taking care of them, even they are retired uh, in our uh, mm. uh, compound. Gosh, so it's very humanitarian or ratarian. You know, I see, <laughs> like the idea of them being hero rats. Are yeah. they indigenous to what country? Uh, they indigenous to Tanzania. Originate from Tanzania, but uh, uh, they could be in this region of Africa. But since we have them in Tanzania, so we breed these rats that we, we have. It's not just for landmines that you're training them. You're also training them for tuberculosis detection. Yeah, now, exactly. That's another story altogether. How does that work? Of course, we cannot use the same bat for TV and uh, for landmine detection because they have to be trained uh, associating uh, explosives toward their food reward and other uh, rewards. And then the TB rats, again, the same day they associate the order of, how do you call it, the order of TB, we mm-hmm. get, uh, they get to associate that with their own reward. So obviously we cannot use them interchangeably. Yeah. They are two different processes and two different departments. I can understand the landmine, but how does a rat detect TB? Uh, usually it's, it's invisible. Uh, it can be found in a human being, but you don't want rats crawling all over potential patients. How do they locate it? Yes, we take the, the, the samples from the lab where the people come and give their... Um, Sputum? Sadivia, whatever. Mm-hmm. Then you get these slides and we put them, we have got one a cage or kind of a glass cage with got 10 holes. So you put these samples in these 10 holes and the rat enters into this cage and smells each of these slides. So where the slide which contains tuberculosis then is positive, the rat will scratch exactly the way they do in TV, in landmine, they scratch that sample and that means it's positive. Then the hunter takes out that and then confirm it with a microscope. So that's how it's done. It's not getting human physically and yeah. smell them. Yeah. Gosh. Is it absolutely foolproof? Have they, uh, in all the years that this has been happening, has it always been proven that they're right? 
Yes, uh, I can say for the landmine uh, rats we've been that I am working with, which is my program, uh, is that uh, they, we have a very we, we've been always we go through a number of retraining and uh, we call it blind test to make sure that the accuracy is always up to the standard. And then uh, we are happy with uh, the performance of the rats and they're very accurate in terms of uh, indicating the the, the right uh, target. Mm. You're obviously a great rat supporter, but for a lot of people, rats equals disease, equals um, damage, biting, all sorts of very negative things. (laughs) Should one be concerned in any way? I think uh, it all depends because our rats, since we we breed them ourselves from early stage, uh, these rats are as domesticated and been uh, taken care by human being and been always with their handlers. So you see uh, our handlers having their rats with them; they are very very friendly, and then uh, but they have their own. Uh, a limit of uh, socializing so mm. that we respect but uh, we we don't have any such problems with our rats and they they tend to uh, really uh, go along with their handlers without any problem no bites no nothing mm. Mm. yes there's a very touching picture on your <laughs> website of a guy sort of cradling a rat and they look very happy and yeah. one another's company Tess, yeah. what about you are you a scientist are you an animal behaviorist a medic what's your background <laughs> That's a good question. I'm, I'm not trying to say to be biologist, but I'm not anymore. I'm more of mine action uh, expert, been working in the mine action field for the past almost 12 years now with all kind of uh, demining assets. So I'm uh, more of a mine action, how demining should be done and then what are the procedures or what do we need to do to get the, the job done. So my background is more of management and uh, mine action and have you had a lot of success in those 12 years? How many mines, for instance, have you managed to locate and how much TB have you detected? I've been working for Apopo for the past year and a half now, but before I used to work with different other organizations, so not exactly with rats because it's only Apopo has got rats for now. It's difficult to calculate the number of mines that I have picked up because I've been in different operational operational. So, yeah, a lot of mines have been uh, removed and then there has uh, been a good progress in terms of demining across uh, the world. But so far, still, we have a lot to go to clear land mines. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that this is the way to go? To, it, does this seem to you to be an environmentally friendly way of detecting both landmines and TB? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, usually uh, uh, landmine or clearance do, doesn't require... Uh, uh, different type of assets. At, at the moment, Apopo here in Mozambique, we use uh, the three different clearance assets, the mechanical, the manual, and rats, because you need to integrate these three different assets to to produce a good result or a very good productivity. So uh, for this purpose, I think uh, always it's good to, to have this uh, mine detection rats to, uh, to also to increase your clearance uh, rate which is at the cheaper rate and uh, at the cheaper cost and then faster as well. But uh, you need to have all the manual human deminer to support the rats because they need to open access line to or to find out the target indicated by the rats. And also you need the mechanical access to clear the, the heavily uh, densely pop, uh, forest area and then it's difficult to access without uh, clearing them with the mechanical assets. So we all, you know, you need the three integrated assets to get the job done. Yeah. 
I'm presuming that the rats themselves, these African uh, giant pouched rats, are not threatened, in, I mean, endangered in any way. I mean, I don't mean because of the landmines. I mean, uh, in terms of numbers, environmentally speaking, are they a threatened species? Not, not really, and not, not that I know, because uh, they're, they're not threatened at all, because uh, I believe I, I'm not uh, the, the scientist or the behavioralist, as we say, to, uh, to understand whether they are threatened or not, but uh, I think to my understanding, I don't believe so. Well, how interesting was that? That was just Fazi Tawelde, and he's a manager for Apopo, a landmine clearance product development organisation. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more and certainly how you can go about adopting one of the rats in their old age, its uh, website is www.apopo, that's A-P-O-P-O dot org, apopo dot org. And just in case you thought that was the sound of squeaking rats in the background, in fact, I think Tess had... Uh, pulled over in the middle of what he described as absolutely nowhere in Mozambique, and I suspect the noise in the background just may have been goats. Well, we're staying with rats right here on the Enviro Show right now. Rats in a rather less heroic vein and sort of rather more victimised. This time, as a controversial French study has found that rats fed a diet of genetically modified maize, developed higher levels of cancer and had a higher death rate than those fed on non-genetically modified maize. We're on the line, we have a freelance activist on genetically modified food products. She's Heidi Swanby, previously with the African Centre for Biosafety and also with Biowatch. But she's been involved in, in doing what she calls genetically modified work for over a decade. Got her on the line. Hi, Heidi. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear Hi. you. Hi. Um, Heidi, just give us an indication of, uh, of how big the genetically modified situation here is in South Africa, because I understand that... We eat a whole lot more maize than most other countries, or certainly many other countries. So how much do we have of it on the shelves? How much do we have of it in our, in our fields? Well, we're actually very unique in the world. We're the only country in the world that's genetically modified our staple food. And about probably almost 80% of our maize is genetically modified. So if you're eating a maize-based product, you can, you can assume that it's GM. Okay, and do we have legislation on it? Have we done testing? Uh, we have legislation. We have the GMO Act. Um, the testing, testing is run by the companies that produce the GM. So in South Africa, that's mostly Monsanto. Um, and then Monsanto provides their safety test to the government, and the government will make a decision whether or not to allow a new variety. So there's no independent testing done. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think... Uh, the only people to have expressed doubts about the study or people who have expressed doubts about the study were, in fact, Monsanto. So, so who knows? It seems that other countries, certainly elsewhere in Africa, but elsewhere across the country, really use the majority of their genetically modified maize for animal feed or for biofuels. You know, when you say that we are one of the, are we one of the only countries using genetically modified maize for, for human consumption? Or the only yeah, one? Yeah, the only one that's allowed yeah, our staple food to be genetically modified. In fact, no other African country has allowed the cultivation of, of a GM crop date. So, I, uh, yes, yeah. it, it sounds like there are a whole lot of questions here. Tell us a little bit more about the French study, because whoever, it, you know, it may or may not have been Monsanto and anybody else, but tell us about the study and their findings, because it seems it was a two-year study. Yes. Do you know more about it? Yeah, it was a, a French researcher who initially what he did was he applied for Monsanto safety testing for a, a variety that we grow here in South Africa. 
It's quite difficult to get hold of the scientific data because it's confidential business information. So he went to court and applied to see that information. And when he looked at it, he found that they had kind of fudged some of the results. And in particular, impacts on kidneys and liver, livers of rats fed on GM. So he uh, carried out a two-year study specifically to see the impacts on uh, kidneys and liver. And he gave them a GM maize and also the herbicide, the chemical that goes with the maize. He also put that into their, into their food and water. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the studies that are done around the world for, for safety assessments are only 90 days, generally, 90-day rat studies. So his two-year study was groundbreaking. And actually the, the results that he saw only started happening after the fourth month. He started seeing massive tumors starting to develop and, and problems only after the fourth month. Are we concerned? I mean, what our Minister of Health, um, Aaron Motswaledi, I believe that he has said that he's asked for full details of this study. I mean, this was back in towards the end of last year, I think around about November. What, have you been tracking the situation? Have any details been forthcoming? No, he, he finally came back to us and said that our, our regulators had declared this strain of GMA safe in almost a decade ago now, mm. in 2002, and that he believes our safety assessment procedures are, are good enough. Why are we using genetically modified uh, maize to this extent? 80% seems very high. Is it uh, easier for, on the sort of agri- for agricultural purposes? Is it more resistant? Is it easier grow, to grow, quick to grow? What are the benefits, do you know? Uh, there are two crops that are available. The one is uh, pest-resistant, so there's a, a bacteria that kills certain pests, and, and the genes that create the toxin in that bacteria have been identified and put into the crop. So the crop is, is giving out a pestif- pesticide 24 hours a day. Um, so that's the one variety. And the other is called uh, herbicide resistance, which means that the farmer can spray his crop with a weed killer, and everything in, in the field will die except for the crop because it's resistant to that particular chemical. And then he doesn't have to get labor to do his weeding. So those, those are the two types that are on the market or in the whole world. Those are the only two types of crops that exist. Hello. And they do help mm. farm management for the first maybe five to ten years. And then after that, we've seen in the United States massive problems setting in. Yes, the United States has a long history with genetically modified crops. Here in South Africa, how long have we been genetically modifying on maize? Uh, since about 1999, 2000, we started growing cotton and then maize and soya. Now all of our soya production is, is GM. And have we, have the, I mean, 1999, that was a good long time ago, more than 10 years ago. Have we had any evidence? Have there been any sort of flashpoints health-wise across the country? Nothing health-wise. And some, some of the reasons I think for that, for that is um, there's been no labelling. So people don't know what they're eating, and if they're having a problem, there's no way of reporting it. And there's been no monitoring whatsoever. Um, so we're hoping now there's labeling legislation coming into force as we speak, and we're hoping that that might assist us in, in checking any health impacts. Environmental impacts, yeah. we've started to see a bit of um, pest resistance. The farmers are buying this very expensive crop, 
and um, finding that the pests are, are resistant to the toxin that it's producing. One of the other issues that certainly come up from the States is the, the issue around genetically modified seed only lasts for X amount of time, which means that uh, farmers, particularly small farmers, then have to go and buy new seed as opposed to harvesting their own seed. Is that something that's proving to be a problem? Well, this is uh, the seed that, that we have, um, any seed that you buy in the shop, almost any seed, the hybrid seed, not only GM, also only lasts for one season. So it's really uh, it's more to do with the way it's developed in the in the lab, the actual hybrid, rather than the genetically modified seed. But what's new about GM is that it's patented. Um, so that that never happened before. So now Monsanto has a patent on a living entity, and and they can they can force farmers to do whatever they want. If they want to buy that crop, then they have to sign agreements because it's patented. Um, and then also if there's cross-contamination, Monsanto can go and sue a farmer because their genes are on another piece of land that they don't have an agreement with that farmer. So the new issue with GM is more around patents than, than actually mm. having to buy a seed from year to year. One of the initial issues around GM was that it was going to provide more food, especially here in Africa where more was required, so that you know our supplies would be uh, would be good and healthy, you know, in terms of quantity. Anyway, right. uh, is that happening? And are we are we? And if we are, how much of this are we exporting? Well, the two major crops grown in the world are first of all soy and then maize, and those are two livestock crops. They're massive. Um, they traded all over the globe to feed to feed our livestock. So they haven't impacted food security in any significant way. And as I say, South Africa is the only country um, where people are actually eating it. And, uh, yeah, the trend in South Africa, we have seen an increase in yields. Um, we haven't seen a decrease in hunger, though, mm. because unfortunately the way the market works is that it just gets exported. It, hungry people still can't access um, more produce. If they don't have money, they, it doesn't matter how much produce is on the market, they can't buy it. But are we exporting it for the purposes of, of, of people eating it? You know, it was mentioned that in other countries it's used for animal feed or mm -hmm. biofuel. What we're exporting or, you know, sending out as aid uh, maize, is it, is it also for human consumption? Um, yeah, so, uh, quite a bit of it is just starting to go into Africa now, which mm -hmm. is caused a lot of scandal and a lot of outcry. Um, in Kenya, there was a, um, a big shipment went to Kenya a few years ago, and uh, the government wasn't quite sure who authorized it, and um, people were very skeptical about eating it. So we're just starting in the last three or four years to see South African maize exports going to other African countries. It's quite recent, though. Uh, it seems like we're scratching a surface here and something that goes down very, very big. I, I sort of feel we need to get both sides of the argument yeah. here. But, Heidi, apart from the African Centre for Biosafety and Biowatch, both of whom you've worked for, you're now freelance, it doesn't seem that there's a, a lot of outcry. Uh, it pops up again and again. Yeah. Is that a concern? Yeah, it is. It's also it's a very technical um, topic. Yeah. And I've, I've taken more than a decade to really understand the science of it and, and to get all different sides of the story. And I think 
people just get confused by the very polarized debate about whether or not it's good or bad because they can't understand the science and make a decision for themselves. So from, it's very daunting. Mm, mm, from your point of view, if anybody would like to inform themselves better, what's the, the best, most neutral site to visit or way to find out more? <laughs> I don't think there is a neutral. <laughs> yeah, neutrality is not... I really don't think yeah. there is. But the two that I can suggest, the one is the African Centre for Biosafety mm-hmm. website. Um, it's acbio.org.za. And then the other is the Public Understanding of Biotechnology, which is a program under the Department of Science and Technology. And um, I think if you just Google, I think it's probably pub.gov.za, but if you just Google PUB, Public Understanding of Biotechnology, Okay. You get to their side, and they've got a lot of materials. Well, as with all things, certainly with all things green, the more you know or the more you look for things, the more you're going to find, but the more you inform yourself, the better you will understand. Hayley, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the space. Take care. Hayley Swanby, a freelance genetically modified uh, researcher, and if you would like to find out more, you can either Google Public Understanding of Biotechnology or check the uh, African Centre for Biosafety website, which is acbio.org.za. And genetically modified uh, situations, something we'll probably almost definitely come back to right here on the Enviro Show. Stay with us. This is SAFM. We're next up here on the Enviro Show, Lightning. You will certainly have heard about the King Edward and Protea Glen school learners who narrowly escaped lightning strikes yesterday, or was it the day before? But um, they were just also a tip of the iceberg, according to South African Weather Services. Something like 260 people die every year in South Africa as a result of, uh, of lightning strikes. And between 1999 and 2007, there have been over 2,300 deaths, a large portion of them happening in the Eastern Cape, interestingly. Well, an act of God, most certainly, but what causes lightning and what is meant by electromagnetic coupling? We have on the line Andrew Dixon. He's a design engineer and he's doing his doctorate on lightning and risk through WITS and also through the AMC Research Group. Hi, Andrew. Evening, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thanks very much. And I'm glad Thanks we got you, got you on your cell phone as opposed to your fixed line because I think one is more vulnerable to lightning if you're on a real telephone. Is that right? I completely agree with that. Mm. Um, lucky tonight up in Joburg, we're sitting without any storms around, so we, we would have been all right either way. Okay, okay. We'll get on to that in just a minute, because I think one has to take this very seriously. But let's start at the beginning with what causes lightning. All right, so lightning, of course, is um, we get uh, strong convection currents, uh, evaporation during the day. You've got water molecules in the air. They go past each other. You get what's can part um, separation that then creates your ability to form lightning, which then propagates down to Earth by in the form of media, which then gets attached to an object, and you get a return stroke, which is the actual movement of that charge from the ground to the cloud, and that's what we see as lightning. So it can happen. It doesn't have to be raining. There doesn't have to be any other sort of storm. Lightning can just occur on its own. Well, usually lightning is associated with big convection currents, as mm. I said. So typically um, tropical storms and that, where you've got a lot of energy, so you've got a lot of movement, you will find lightning happens within that sort of environment a lot more than you would with a typical, say, London grey storm where it's just raining. Mm. 
Are there, well, I mean, I was just mentioning there that apparently more deaths happen in the Eastern Cape. I'm not sure because it, they're more vulnerable, more exposed, or is it because geographically it's more prone? I mean, are there areas that are more prone than others? There are definitely areas which are more prone, and I would imagine it's probably got to do with two things with the Eastern Cape. One is the uh, mountains that you have in the area. Um, secondly, the uh, probably your elevated rural community. And that's often where we find more deaths occur is because people are out in fields working, they're traveling long distances, um, and therefore they get their exposure to the risk is that much greater than you would, say, in a city. There seems to be lightning and lightning, sheet lightning, is it flash lightning? I'm not sure, but there seem to be different types of lightning. Yeah, conventionally we break it down primarily into two groups, um, you get a cloud-to-ground strike, which is obviously from the cloud onto the ground, and that can happen both in an upward or a downward direction. And then you get cloud-to-cloud strikes. We also, in fact, get upper atmosphere strikes, which are one of the definitions on that is a sprite. But we don't really worry about that much, or not a lot of research has been done because we're still trying to get to grips with everything that happens within our sort of cloud-to-ground type circuitry. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, you know, thinking in terms of climate change, are we experiencing more, uh, obviously, you know, up in your part of the world, there's a whole lot more of it, but are we experiencing more generally as a country? We certainly are seeing a higher number of strikes. Now, this is probably through two things. One is previous misreporting of it, so we didn't have the technology to necessarily classify and identify all strikes. Whereas now with the weather service, they've got the, the lightning detection network. It's, as that becomes more and more commonplace technology, we get better data, which means we understand more. So we've definitely seen from previous research to the current research, we see a lot more lightning. Then is a trend with our increased um, climate change, and et cetera, that we are seeing an increase in lightning. But it is cyclic, so it is dependent on uh, La Nino and El Nino years. Hmm. You're working, you're doing your doctorate through WITS and also through the EMC research group, that, which is electromagnetic coupling. Yep. Just explain that term. Uh, electromagnetic coupling basically comes down to um, we have a lot of lightning strikes to the ground and they don't interact with people at all, but they have an influence on any electrical system. Hmm. So as a result, you have a nearby lightning strike. It can be a couple of kilometers even away from your house, but it can induce currents into your system within your house and as a result can cause damage uh, generally to electrical equipment. And because our electrical equipment is becoming more and more sensitive, this is more likely to occur. Yeah, sure. It seems to be yeah. that we aren't, haven't found yet a way to sort of harness it or utilize it, or have we? No. Uh, that we certainly haven't, and I don't see. I would it love to say we're working on it, and we'll have a solution by next week. But unfortunately, <laughs> it's so not. Comes yes. down, it comes down to the speed. It's the frequency of lightning itself. We can't deal with that much energy in a short mm. space of time. We have no way to trap it and then use it. What we are able to do, however, is counteract it. I mean, there are endless sort of lightning conductors, certainly all over Johannesburg. How do those work? All right, so the principle there is, so I said we had a downward leader coming from a cloud. Um, the idea behind that is to make it the preferential point of strike, so that's why they usually are quite tall, metallic, therefore conducting, and 
you get enhancements of the electric field around that, which creates then an upward streamer. And you just, the intention there is to make it move faster than any other upward streamer coming off any other object, and therefore it becomes the preferential point of attachment. Okay, so it's a pr pretty straightforward, really. Well, it's straightforward. The, um, the process, though, of course, is that someone says, well, I had a lightning mast up. Why did it still strike my house? Mm. Yeah, that's um, one of the scenarios where you may turn around and say, well, that was an act of God. There are a number of parameters, the rain falling, wind, there are a whole lot of different parameters. So, yeah, you may have got the upward streamer coming from that first, but the lightning may have been just out of the radius of attachment onto that object, therefore it attached to the house rather than the lightning mast, which is why if you're going to have something like that set up, you need to have it set up properly by a specialist who knows what they're doing. Yeah. It's a very humbling thing, this expression, it's an act of God, because it so is, and there's really not a whole lot that can be done about it. But one of, one of the things uh, that's interesting about what has just happened recently with the King Edward and the Protea Glen school learners is that, is that it, it hit certainly the one young girl who was absolutely devastated by it, and it was interesting to hear her say that subsequently to that she's been quite disorientated. Why does it hit some people and not others, and is it just bad luck? I wouldn't have said it was bad luck. Um, I think it's more a case of if you expose yourself to the risk, um, you've got a greater chance of it occurring. Um, so being outside in a storm, of course, you know, you're at a risk already. So if you see the storm coming, you should be already saying, I should move inside, I should move into a protective area. Um, the fact that it happens to hit someone, it is still a relatively random event. Um, I've done a lot of case scenarios of taking an area and saying, well, how often is a lightning strike going to hit the same point within that? And, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of, of events have to occur before you'd get necessarily the same strike to hit the same point. Having said that, and just so people don't get the wrong idea, is that very often you will find that you will have an area where lightning is far more prone to occur and that certain objects do get hit over and over again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, lightning does strike the same place twice. It certainly does. And, I mean, in the Guinness Book of Records or so is to be believed. There are many people who have been struck a number of times. Well, goodness me, thanks very much, Andrew. You've certainly thrown a little bit of light on the issue of lightning. Thanks for sharing and very best of luck. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Cheers. Andrew Dixon there, and he's a design engineer doing his doctorate on lightning and risk. Now, how interesting is that, doing it through VITS? But right now you're listening to The Enviro Show. This is SAFM. Yay. Well, switching next here on the Enviro Show to something rather even more earthy, perhaps, compost compostable packaging with Michael Theodorus Palos, who's been in the packaging industry for 35 years, and I imagine he's seen more than a few changes. He's currently operations manager for Katura Coffee, and they have gone into some compostable packaging. But uh, we've got Michael on the line. Hi, Michael. Good evening, Nancy. So you've been in the packaging business for 35 years. My goodness me, you must have seen a huge amount of changes and trends. What are the principal ones? How much has packaging changed over the years? Well, Nancy, from our early days, there wasn't anything much other than paper. And we evolved out of the paper industry into being given the opportunity of working in these wonderful new materials called plastic. And uh, from those days, a few of us took the opportunity of going into this new, whole new field of being able to 
produce and manufacture and print and work on these funny, clear films. And yes, uh, many years down the, the road, uh, we found that uh, these, these, these great materials had many, many applications, but there was almost no way that these materials would ever disappear back out of uh, existence. Mm. I suppose one of the biggest changes, possibly, is is that less is more these days. In the you know perhaps in the early days when nobody was giving a thought to landfills or what was or wasn't biodegradable, packaging would have been you know an oyster of the designer where they could use whatever materials they want, whether it was plastic, polystyrene, cellophane, all sorts of things. Is there a, a conscious trend to reduce the amount of packaging these days? It definitely is. The, even though the plastics themselves, that every single plastic bag that's ever been made in the world is still around, it, it, it cannot go anywhere else. Uh, there are very, very strong trends towards using or recycling these plastics. And it's not always easy because there's lots of contaminants that go into them with bits of paper, you know, till slips in the plastic bags and the likes of uh, all kinds of, of, of contaminants, which could be inks, which could be stickers on bags and things like that. So it makes it quite difficult to recycle them other than really putting them into landfill and that's where they stay and that's where they'll never disappear from. And what happened to the good old brown paper bag? Because, I mean, that, was, that would have been the, the forerunner of the plastic bag, was it? Well, I can tell you, in my early days of my apprenticeships back in the 1960s, 67, 68, uh, the brown paper bag was a great innovation for us. We were able to take this piece of material out of trefoil and turn it into something that, that every housewife or every household would use. And the brown paper bag also did not serve... Uh, all the purposes that were applied, it was easily destructible, you know, it got contaminated with water, it got contaminated with all kinds of things, it easily allowed in smells and odours, etc, etc. So uh, we got a little bit more clever and we developed these clear brown paper bags. They were pretty much uh, what we called cellulose in those days, sweet wrappers and things, and they, they came from uh, products uh, that that uh, were pretty much plant-based. And it wasn't very long after that that uh, the plastics industries had lots and lots of byproducts coming from themselves, uh, where from petrochemicals they found there were these polymers and these polymer resins that could be combined. And once we started to play around with these things, oh, my word, you had things that you could turn into almost anything mm. from plastic bags to, to anything that one can think of in their mind today. When was the plastic bag first invented then? Goodness, I, I would uh, not be too accurate, but it must have been close to the 70s. Um, I know back in 1973, Whilst I was uh, still in one of the paper manufacturing industries, we were given the opportunity to go and now 
develop our own skills within these plastic industries where these little resin balls came along and we were able to blow these funny films and then we had to find ways of uh, making them look better by producing uh, or printing on them and uh, changing their nature. But they were very nice and they were very easy to work with mm. films, so they actually became very popular. Mm. Well, things certainly have changed. I mean, that you were busy having lots of fun doing all sorts of things with plastic bags. What, what frightens me is what you said that every plastic bag that's ever been made is still hanging around in landfills because they simply don't biodegrade. They take hundreds of years to biodegrade, unlike the compostable packaging that I think Katura are now pr putting their coffee into. So it, uh, uh, the reverse of being filled with lots and lots of different chemicals, this is now completely chemical-free and you you can just put it onto your compost heap and it will disintegrate? Explain. Well, uh, compostable materials are an actual fact byproduct. They byproducts of all um, one would call plant-based resources. They, the types of material that actually need uh, they don't just disappear by themselves uh, in any case. They, they, they need to be in a very conducive environment where everything needs to be right. Pretty much the heat, the uh, environment that you're digging it into. So, yes, sure, uh, putting them into your garden and having them uh, laying down in the bottom of the garden, they will eventually disappear, whereas plastic materials just do not go away. Yeah. They don't go away. And there is a fact, and uh, I'm not sure what we, where it can be Googled, but the fact of the matter is that every bit of plastic that was ever produced in this world is still on this world. Mm -hmm. Golly. When you say eventually, that sounds like it could be very short or very long. How long does it take for one of these compostable bits of packaging to decompose? Nancy, the time frame has not been established and it's been worked on with engineers throughout the world, uh, very knowledgeable people who understand what these, these, these uh, materials are actually wanting to do. What we want to do with a, a compostable bag is to be able to not only allow it to disappear into normal landfill or into the garden, into your home garden and that, uh, we want to have these films, in actual fact, um, also have properties which are required for various applications, particularly, you know, where, where there's specific requirements of uh, what a package needs to protect other than just being a nice bag on the shelf mm. in the supermarket. So that became the complexity of it. And then not only that, I mean, you didn't have just this fancy little piece of um, material sitting around holding whatever product you wanted to put into it. Somebody had to put some printing onto it, and somebody had to do some very, very deep research as to, to making it look attractive and to yeah. making it look... Uh, workable and 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 uh, consumer friendly. Michael, we're going to have to leave it at that. But I think packaging is a huge business that, uh, as you, you talked about it, playing with it earlier. I think there's a whole lot more that we need to think about every time we buy a piece of packaging. But thanks very much for your time. Very best of luck. Thanks. Yes, thank yes. you very much. Pleasure. And just for just for the sake of it, there are over a million plastic bags used 
every minute in the world. Oh, that is scary. Thank you. Thank you. That's a real OMG, is it not? A million plastic bags used every minute all over the world. Oh. That was uh, Michael Fedoras Palos, and if you'd like to know a little bit more, check the Katura coffee site. It's katura.co.za. Well, finally, moving from coffee to a little chocolate, a little green goodie to close. And don't forget, if you've got a green product or service that you'd like to tell us about here on the Enviro Show, do it. Find us on Facebook, we're at the Enviro Show on SAFM, or pop us a mail, enviro at safm.co.za. Well, seeing as tonight uh, it's Valentine's Day, we thought we'd bring you something a little bit sweet, so Kim Winter went off to find out more about honest organic chocolate with founder Anthony Gerhardt. It began about 2008. It wasn't a very romantic beginning. It was actually in my kitchen. Um, I had changed my eating habits to sort of more healthy eating and raw cocoa, something I was eating in my smoothies and breakfast cereal and stuff. So I just experimented with that and made some chocolate mousse from raw cacao and coconut cream. And it tasted great. So I just then looked online and saw some more recipes, healthy stuff, and made the truffles. And then everybody loved them. Dipped the, the praline into an 80% chocolate, kuvacha chocolate, which I made at home as well. I bought a, um, a big granite slab for my kitchen and just did it all old school style on there. I taught myself from videos online. But I had to wake up in summer, I had to wake up at about four in the morning, maybe three, to get the cool air. Because when you're making chocolate, you need you know, temperatures around about 16 to 18 degrees. So obviously in summer, it's like no chance. So I'd wake up early, make the chocolates, go to bed. And the truffles originally started selling at the biscuit mill market in Woodstock. And then a friend of mine, Michael de Klerk, joined me. Uh, he came from the UK. He was also experimenting with chocolate there. Talk us through the ingredients and, and also sort of to get our heads around how you just started making chocolate. Sort of somewhat of a foreign thing. Talk us through that. Yeah, it was actually very foreign to me too. I never thought I would make chocolate. But once I found some videos and explanations, it's actually it's a fairly simple process. It's just that you've got to do it right. You know, the, the best comparison is that movie Chocolats. The way that she does it, she melts the chocolate, you see her melting the chocolate, and she pours it out onto a granite slab. And she moves it around with some tools, which is what we do. And that process is called tempering. And you need to do that process uh, in order to get a finished product that's uh, glossy, the chocolate's glossy, that's got a good snap, and that also withstands higher temperatures, doesn't melt. So that's the vital process which I taught myself um, um, that's what we still do today is hand tempering. Hardly anybody does it by hand anymore. It's mostly just throw the chocolate in a machine and then 20 minutes later it comes out and it's ready. But the process is about getting the right crystal structure of the cocoa butter. And there are different types of crystal structures and you want the one, the beta structure. And when you've got that structure, that's what gives it the gloss, the shine, the snap. It's like, you know, the, when they temper metal, like in those old medieval movies, they're smashing the metal in the fire and they put it in the water. It's a similar process, heat and cold, to get the right structure. And the ingredients, um, well, it's all, we make raw chocolate. So the cocoa that we use is unroasted. That's the big difference. So most chocolatiers, when they get the bean, they roast the bean, uh, like coffee beans, a similar thing. And then from their grind and towards the chocolate. But we use beans that are unroasted from a little co-op in Ecuador. We, we don't get the bean itself. We get, ask them to grind it for us. And we get it into a paste form, and then we use that. And then we add... Instead of cane sugar, we use agave, which is from the same plant as the tequila plant, the blue agave, but it's not alcoholic. It's a low GI organic fructose, so it won't spike your blood sugar level. And the slabs are basically really pure. It's just the cacao and the agave. 
We don't put any emulsifiers, no uh, soy lecithin, no vanilla, no other things. It's just really pure. The cacao is also certified organic as well. And also it's more of an ethical way to source cacao because we speak to the co-op directly. Um, and often larger companies have agents in between. And those agents are obviously you know, incentivized to get the lowest price that they can. Whereas we work directly and pay a bit of a higher price. But we know that that farm works with their farmers in the area to keep the farmers farming cacao because it's, it's, it's sort of symbiotic with, it can grow symbiotically with the forest, you know. It's, it's been there for hundreds of years and they can keep on farming in the same place. They don't have to then, for example, a lot of companies, uh, big soy companies come and they buy land or, or take out a long lease and then deforest and then plant soy and then the earth is dead for how many years. So this is just, we also feel good about that, keeping the forest alive in Ecuador. And then we put different flavors in our slabs. The latest one I'll just mention is interesting, it's from Ghana. It's a pepper corn. Looks sort of looks like black pepper, but it's a bit brown. We sprinkle it on the on the bar. When you crack it um, in your mouth, you get like a, a citrus chili flavor. But actually, nobody's been able to really define or describe this flavor perfectly yet because it's just such an odd flavor. But it's amazing. So yeah, that's something to taste. And health benefits? I mean, you say you use raw instead of roasted. So the whole thing about raw cacao is that it has a higher, um, it retains the antioxidants. So there's more antioxidants in a raw cacao than roasted, which obviously is really good for your cells and for cell degeneration. Also, really high in magnesium, so good for your heart, good for your blood flow. Those are the two main health benefits. And then, of course, the agave is a lower GI, so it's going like to spike your blood sugar as well. Tell us some of the things that you do, your truffles, your slabs. Well, we've got about eight flavors of different slabs. Actually, we've got orange, we've got these grains of paradise, which is the pepper. We've got mint, which we've just done now by popular demand. We have maca, which is a, it's kind of an exotic plant from Peru. It's a root plant, very ancient root plant, which it's supposed to enhance the libido. It also it does give you energy and vitality, but that's the, uh, the theory. It's supposed to enhance the libido. The, the warriors in, in Peru used to eat this before battle. They'd go out into battle, and when they came back, the villagers would hide all the women for a day because they'd be so wired. <laughs> We've got 172% with cocoa nibs, which is basically the cocoa bean broken down and sprinkled on top. We have got an 88% bar, which is nice and dark. I'll tell you one thing about the bars quickly, though. Uh, each wrapper is designed by different local artists. When you buy a bar, you get a piece of artwork as well as a chocolate. And we also do ice cream. So we do dairy-free ice cream, which is quite amazing. It's, it's delicious and creamy like a normal ice cream, but we, instead of using cream and dairy, we use uh, coconut butter. So we make our own coconut butter, we add a bit of cashew nut butter, and then a few other ingredients, very simple. And you get a rich, creamy ice cream. We've got a chocolate, uh, a mint one, and a coconut one. Uh, and the other things we do at the shop now and again, like our macadamia nut butter cups. It's quite a mouthful, but so is the cup. The actual cup is made of 72% chocolate. It's like a tot, tot glass cup, and then you eat the whole thing in one go, and it's just it's amazing. It's the best thing. When you say 88% or 72%, what is that actually referring to? A lot of people ask us that, and it's actually really simple. Uh, for example, if it's 88% chocolate, it means 88% of that bar is cacao. It's from the cocoa plant. And the other 12% is, for us, it's just a gar. Uh, but for other people, I mean, you know, if you buy a cheap milk chocolate, then it's going to be, if they had to put the percentage on a cheap brand of milk chocolate, it's probably about 20, 25% actual cocoa beans. So it's more like a candy, really, than a chocolate. And what have you got up your sleeve? We've got quite a few things we want to do in the next few months. Because we've got this new kitchen uh, here at Woodstock, our Whale Street one is where we can experiment. 
So we've just done a, a water ganache. You know, usually in a ganache, in a, like a truffle, uh, they make with uh, chocolate and cream and butter. But we now, you can also do the water, chocolate and water, which sounds weird, but it keeps a very clean flavor. So the chocolate comes through and it's just soft and gooey. Heather, who works with us, she's made a water ganache with uh, rose petals on top and lemon zest and a bit of lavender. It's really amazing. It's Valentine's Day today. What's been flying off the shelves? Well, we did a limited run of this incredible Valentine's bar. We actually created a bar where we made a poem, which is engraved into the bar. So we did, made a special mold where there's this beautiful poem in the bar, a once-off wrapper by an artist as well. And we only made about 50, and they're all gone. <laughs> but we also have our maca slab, which is the one with the heart on it. And that's the one that's sort of supposed to increase the libido, and that's been going really well today. No, no, no guesses why. And just lastly, are, are people responsive to organic raw chocolate? And people can get their heads around it in a way. Yeah, definitely. I think in the beginning it was, uh, you know, that's now almost five years ago, four or five years ago. Organic was, was coming up and this sort of local handmade stuff. But doing the markets so much and in shops and doing tastings, we've been able to speak to a lot of people and, people's, and doing a lot of education about it. But as well, seeing how people have changed. Like, they don't come in going, what is this organic? They come in asking, we want organic, you know. So there's definitely a much, much bigger awareness. And yeah, the demand is definitely growing. Well, there you go, responsive, or what I would imagine there are warriors all over South Africa just dying to buy that chocolate. I know I certainly am, and I bet Stephen Kirker is too. Kim Winter, thank you very much. Uh, Derek Fordyce, thank you very much. And I'm Nancy Richards, and I'll be back again tomorrow with Otherwise. Uh, but next up, we've got the salivating Stephen Kirker with Waltimore Music. <laughs>